I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to Eldika Zabo. Ildiko, welcome to the podcast. It's an extreme pleasure to be here, Daniel. Uh, now, you're an ornithologist, right? Correct. I'm totally immersed in birds. Wonderful. Um, what, what did you study to become an ornithologist? My path was an unusual one. You're probably expecting to hear that I went to grad school and uh, have been passionate about birds since I was six years old. That's not quite the way it works. So um, I um, did oceanography uh, at UBC. And as part of that, I got really, really interested in plankton and especially um, zooplankton and crustaceans. So I had a great love of museums and of organizing what I was learning. And that led through a curious path that includes hitchhiking to my being asked to uh, write a book on zooplankton. So in 1982, uh, the tabular key to the copepods of the Northeast Pacific was published. And that was a wonderful adventure and the beginning of my supreme love of taxonomy. So how did birds come in? I got approached by Canadian Wildlife Service. And what they had was jars of cassin auklets. Uh, that's a, uh, a bird found off the West Coast and in the Salish Sea. And um, they um, nest in burrows, and at night you can catch them, and you can find out what they've been eating. And they had collected basically regurgitations is a scientific word, uh, vomit is the vulgar word, uh, from these birds, and they needed to find out what zooplankton species were in there. And that was my introduction to bird research. Oh, wow. That's very... Um, Stinky. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. And very unexpected. <laughs> you don't imagine um, a bird scientist starting off in the ocean. As I say, it really came from oceanography. And then uh, the next study I participated on was um, gulls, meaning Bonaparte's and mew gulls, feeding in active pass. And Active Pass, we all know about, uh, that's um, that narrow piece of water near Salt Spring that we pass when we're going from Vancouver to Victoria and the BC ferries. And uh, that was a lot of fun too. But again, my role was um, what are the birds eating and what species. And you're not, um, you, are you doing field work right now or do you just work at the Beattie Biodiversity Museum? Well, I would not classify myself as a scientist. I would classify myself more as a curator. 
Now, that doesn't mean that I don't participate in research projects and, um, yes, I'm a co-author on publications and all the things that a scientist usually does, but I see myself more as um, uh, the term we know better is librarian, but basically um, I um, help maintain, add new specimens, and uh, the most exciting part is helping people access the Library of Life or the Library of Birds that we have at the uh, BD Biodiversity Museum. That's a perfect description of museum work, um, being a librarian of life. <laughs> um, how did you end up at the BD? How did you go from researching gulls to caring for this massive collection? That is a curious path. Um, and a lot of things in life don't go in a straight line. So at the time I was being basically research assistant uh, for research on um, red-tailed hawks. And I um, started, I came to the museum on that project for the first time. And then I decided to start volunteering. And the rest is history. And a lot of people discover their passions through volunteering. And that's why I am really, really um, focused on providing an awesome experience every Thursday for our specimen prep uh, drop-in lab. And this is especially important for undergrads, but we have a lot of graduates, uh, people that are uh, finish their bachelors and people that are retired that come in as well. So basically, a lot of people, it takes some time to figure out what they want to do. And by volunteering, you can learn a lot. And I also tell the volunteers, it's just as important to discover what you don't like as, and uh, cross things off the list as uh, to discover what your passion is. One of the really overwhelming things I, I find when people um, reach a crossroads in their life, like when they turn 18 and they're done with high school, uh, it's overwhelming because there's so many opportunities and so many options uh, that they don't know what to do. So you're right. It, it is essential to cross off some of the lists uh, or some of the options um, and narrow down what you're going to do with your life. So volunteering is a great way to get started. That's why I got started in, in museums too. And I think a lot of people do. The other reason that some of the undergrads come, of course, is uh, resume building. But occasionally someone comes and they discover, much to their horror usually, that um, dissection and working with specimens is not for them. And if you've decided to go to medical school or vet school, this is a bit of a crisis and you might as well have it now because you haven't finished your bachelor's and you have time to rearrange your courses and your thoughts. So I really feel that um, what we're doing in the lab, both the negative and the positive experience of the students is really, really, really important. Perfectly put. By the way, do you have a favorite type of bird? 
Okay, there's a standard question for, uh, sorry. There's a standard reply to that question, and uh, which is usually the bird I'm looking at. I think all of us have favorites, but I think our favorites are highly flexible. And you might find the same when you're looking at fossils or minerals. The one you read about last week or the one that the uh, lighting was particularly good on when you pass by today will be at the forefront of your mind. So I have a lot of favorite birds. I have written a monograph uh, that was published by Reaction Books on kingfishers. So I must confess that since I spent uh, basically three years of my life writing about kingfishers, I do have a great love for them. I get that asked that all the time too, and I use the exact same answer. Uh, it depends on my mood of the day. <laughs> well, there's so many wonderful, wonderful aspects in um, natural history. And, um, and for instance, at the moment, I'm really in love with clouds. So, and I'm reading a book on jellyfish. So, um, the world revolves around birds, but it doesn't. You've done a lot of science. Have you made any discoveries, either uh, scientific discoveries or even just something you personally discovered in, in the collection uh, that wowed you uh, personally uh, that you'd care to share? Well, if I go back to copepods, uh, for one particular species, which is very common in BC waters, the male had never been seen. And so I managed to find a male and I did um, basically a species description of that. Naturally, you don't get to name it because everyone knows about the much larger female. That was exciting. And um, in terms of that kind of glory, I haven't done anything taxonomic um, like that with birds, but I have been involved um, with um, the um, Allschuler lab at UBC. And um, in terms of looking at biomimicry, and um, which is actually a word that that lab does not like to use, but it's the one that most people understand. But basically trying to understand um, how we can improve mechanical flight by looking at how birds fly. And those publications have been uh, published in, um, one's been published in Nature and also in Science Advances. And, um, and those are major papers. And that's really, really exciting. And also I published on Ravens and that paper is a major paper as well. So there's lots of different aspects but um, my role as curator is not to compete in the publisher parish world, but to help others. And that helping of others um, spans the gamut. So there's the undergrads that I mentioned, there's the graduate students, uh, both at UBC and other universities. And there's also a lot of government research. 
And uh, lately, we've been participating with both federal and provincial government research in all sorts of different areas. And um, a lot of that is slightly more applied uh, in terms of we've been looking at the prevalence of uh, toxoplasmosis in urban birds. Also, the lint in your uh, washing machine, how prevalent is that in the guts of urban birds? And uh, there are just so many awesome research topics out there. Amazing. And what are you working on right now? I think one thing that's crazy about curation is that you usually end up working hard every week in multiple directions. And by Friday, you've got more work on your plate than you started on Monday. So you never get ahead of the game. So at the moment, uh, this particular week, um, I'm into northern. Go- uh, I'm uh, working on northern goshawks. This has to do with a master's thesis uh, that's already published, uh, both uh, as a thesis and in the literature. But we're um, basically uh, fine-tuning how we are um, going to store the specimens and uh, doing database work. That's really fun, <laughs> and I. I absolutely um, know what you mean when you say that on Friday you have more work on your desk than you had when the week began. (laughs) Well, the other thing I'm helping with this week is one of our volunteers is a grade 11 student. And uh, he's decided to do a presentation on birds to, uh, for the teacher, his grade six teacher. So I've been talking to him. He's trying to he wants to bring some of the specimens that he's made, including his spectacular snowy owl. And it's really fun watching his enthusiasm. And I'm trying to um, uh, get him to recall what it was like to be in grade six to uh, do a presentation that those students will really, really enjoy. Uh, because it's really, really remember, uh, important when you're talking to remember wh- who your audience is. Absolutely. Just because you're passionate about something doesn't mean everyone else is going to understand that passion um, right away. Um, but it's great that you're really mentoring the next generation. Well, thank you for that. I uh, do try, but I feel that you are also probably mentoring many, many You've mentioned some of your studies that you've done. That must involve a lot of field work. Um, one of my favorite parts of these interviews is hearing field stories. Uh, apparently, the field is just this crazy place where um, amazing things happen, terrible things happen, uh, comical things happen. Uh, do you have any fun field stories that you'd care to share? I do have lots of field stories, but they all ended when I accepted this job. <laughs> okay. I was doing a lot more of a field work because curation is um, especially uh, the way that it works at UBC. There is no budget for field work, so it is not part of my job description at all, which is extremely sad. Uh, in terms of, so I think I, um, rather than going into my past life and past careers, I think I will just um, shy away from that question and just say that it is not part of my current slate of work. 
Have you ever opened a drawer and found something that made you gasp? Uh, I was in the Falcon cabinet one day. And the reason I was there is the um, provincial uh, government had offered me uh, a prairie falcon. And this is uh, a, a falcon that uh, normally doesn't come this far north. So I was very excited. Yes, they uh, occur rarely in British Columbia. Uh, they're usually found further south. And by looking at the database, I found out that we hadn't prepared one since um, the late 40s, I believe, but a long time ago. So I decided to look at the prairie falcons. And when I was in that drawer, I pick, I noticed that we had an aplomato falcon which is a falcon that's um, much more easily seen in the Rio Grande and in, in Central America. And I picked it up and I was astounded to find out that it was done by Kovacs. And it was from a little town called El Boston in Argentina. And I've had lunch with the sons of that man when I was in Argentina doing field work. So here I am at home, not thinking about Argentina, handling the bird by people that two years ago I was sitting around having lunch and looking at their private family museum and discussing birds. And um, so our collection is extremely international. I've also, on a personal trip, I went to the Falkland Islands, and we have a pocket collection of birds from the 50s from the Falkland Islands, and I met the daughter of the person who prepared the birds that we have in our collection. In that case, I knew we had the collection. So when we were on New Island, I actually asked whether or not um, um, their last name is strange, whether or not any of that family was around and asked to be introduced. And that was great fun. The world seems so big, but it also, in moments like that, seems so small. Um, that's amazing. You mentioned that you've got a frozen um, uh, collection for DNA purposes. Uh, when you're processing a specimen, what are you collecting? I know you collect the, the skin, the bones. Uh, what else do you collect? Okay, we call it harvesting. Okay, so um, so it's called harvesting tissues. And uh, what we do is we take um, all uh, different museums do different things. Uh, we do the standard and it uh, we take liver, heart, and muscle. Now, sometimes we only take muscle, and it's typically breast muscle, because it depends on the condition of the bird. Um, the first um, sample we don't take is liver, because it deteriorates rather quickly. So uh, in terms of um, doing whole genome uh, analysis, um, they quite often want liver. Interesting. Do you collect eggs as well? Yes, no. Um, during the pandemic, um, I, um, received some raven eggs, so I prepared those at home, and I also, uh, received some osprey eggs and, um, prepared those. Um, 
egg collecting is like a whole different discipline. Um, and it's something that I like to do, but it is not the focus of our particular collection. So they're incidentals. And I'm not saying that the eggs don't have good data and they're not archived um, just as well as the skins and skeletons. I'm just saying that we don't actively seek them. When you prepare them, do you drain them or poke a hole in them? You do all sorts of things. Uh, the first thing you do is you put them in, um, I got four raven eggs, and uh, you put them in a container with water. And you see who floats and who sinks. And you can actually determine which egg was laid first and last by doing that. Yes. So, um, so with the, uh, that's the first thing I did. And then I, um, basically the eggs lose weight and gain air as the embryo develops. So I, uh, and they're labeled one of four, two of four, three of four, and four of four. And, uh, so I did my best to one of four means it was laid first. So, um, I did that and, um, and actually before I did that stage, I weighed them. So you weigh the eggs and that also gives you an indication. You float the eggs and then you start, uh, you take the measurements, um, which is length and width. And then most people will be surprised. It's the opposite of what you do with Easter eggs. The hole goes in the center of the egg, not at either end because then you can't take the measurement properly because you've basically chopped it off. So uh, blowing eggs is uh, great fun and uh, has to be done with some care because they, uh, they're slippery. I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, they're quite slippery. And so you just blow the yolk out? I don't think I want to describe all the steps, uh, but basically it's a combination of things and there's... It's more a lot of shaking than actual blowing. Blowing is a term. Uh, there is a bit of blowing involved. Uh, but basically, if you are going to do it, it, attempt it yourself, the most important thing is to have a basin of water under you so that when you drop the end egg, it bounces on the water and not the countertop. <laughs> so, um, and most of it is kind of intuitive. Uh, sometimes I use a syringe and I introduce water into it and, um, you do have to actually break the yolk and basically create an omelet inside the egg so that it will, uh, be, shall we say more drippy and come out. Thanks. I've wondered about that for a long time, how they actually preserve eggs because of course they go bad so quickly. Um, you've got to take out the yolk somehow. <laughs> yes, you do. You do. And, uh, and it's, um, it's a process I enjoy. Uh, I, um, what we do the most of is, um, we, uh, get, um, um, dead birds from, uh, wildlife rehab centers. A lot of them are either window kills or cat predation, occasionally other kinds of predation. We also get vehicle collisions. So, um, and, um, with those morts, 
or uh, as we call them. Um, we uh, do all the measurements and uh, we skin them. And a nice way to describe it is we throw out everything that would traditionally go in the stew pot and we keep everything that usually would go into the garbage heap because what we want is the skin and the feathers. And we want to get rid of anything that would putrefy and um, turn into liquid. You've described a really interesting job, a very diverse job. Um, I'm curious, what's the best part of it? What, do, what makes you really uh, light up when you have to do it? It's also a very people-oriented job. Um, I do get emails from people I haven't seen for years and telling me that they've just finished graduate studies or sometimes they've gone into a totally different discipline and they've seen some amazing bird behavior. And I think the part of the job is just um, helping people discover biodiversity and obviously in the bird world. Uh, but uh, there is a certain amount of wonder in the um, in anything to do with nature, and there's so much we don't know. So I think it's more the interactions and um, giving people the ability to have a hands-on experience uh, with birds, and people are often surprised on how awesomely soft they are. And I think that having a, it's easier to have a connection with birds if you've touched one. I'm often surprised by how large they are, um, especially some birds like eagles. I remember in one museum opening a, a drawer and seeing how massive this creature was and being amazed that this thing could get off the ground. And also because we only see them from afar, you know, way up in the air, they look tiny, but they're huge. <laughs> they are of a size, but I find, um, you know, they're a raptor. And that word means that they grip with their feet and they kill with their feet. So one thing I encourage all ages, uh, and I usually have it as, uh, we'll have the whole specimen, but I'll just have an eagle foot, uh, sort of like a prop. And I encourage people to try and prick their finger with it. Of course, I've washed it and it's all sanitized. But, um, and no one ever does. But people are always shocked by how sharp those talons are. And, um, and I think that that helps people relate to the concept of a bird of prey when they see the equipment, shall we say. And I'm sure it just uh, really uh, increases their um, appreciation for what you do and, and the animals that you're studying. Well, people have a natural love for birds. And I think that um, part of that is because at some point, either in our childhood or at just part of us, We'd all like to be able to fly. We, you see a bird soaring and you go, wow, I'd like to be able to do that. 
So I think that the main wonder about birds is flight. Yes, there's awesome behaviors. Yes, there's ones that dive incredibly deep. But this ability to fly is really something magical. It's almost primal. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, there's uh, so many folklore and myths about that involve birds or, um, or flight. Now, I have to ask the inverse question. Uh, what's the worst or the most challenging part of your work? Not having enough time to do it all. <laughs> but I think that uh, that's a, curor- a curator's lament uh, in that there is, uh, I have to turn down projects, and that always really, really hurts. Uh, but uh, it's just that there are not enough hours in a day or days in a week to do everything I'd like to do. That's a perfect answer. (laughs) I'm curious, uh, do you identify as belonging to any underrepresented communities? And if so, has that affected your work or research? um, I'm a dyslexic. I did not read till the age of 10. I am an extremely fortunate dyslexic because I, uh, for someone of my age, I'm 65, um, dyslexia was, um, the word was barely known when I was a child. And um, I was picked by Marjorie Gulick at the Montreal Children's Hospital to prove that females also got dyslexia. So I was on medical shows as a child, and I am really, really fortunate that I was picked because, of course, she made sure I had the most amazing therapy. So I have what, there's new word for it, a word for a disability you can't see. I've forgotten the technical term. Um, and um, so I have... Um, uh, dyslexia has its challenges. It's very much, um, uh, and um, it's very much a three-dimensional uh, way of thinking. And um, so in terms of being part of minority, that would be the one that I identify with the most. I'm so glad you were diagnosed at a, a young age because... I was extremely yeah, fortunate. you can't treat something if you don't know that it's there. Um I've got some very close friends with uh, dyslexia, and so I know it can be a bit of a challenge. It's an interesting thing because um, amongst um, other things, your memory can be intermittent. So you uh, you don't have automatic, re- for my case, I don't have automatic recall of everything at any moment. It's in there, but uh, sometimes it's a bit jumbled. I'm also curious. Um, As a whole, do you find that your field, uh, either ornithology or uh, curatorship, is really opening and and welcoming, or is it more closed and insular? Or does it vary? I'm in a subsection of the subsection of the subsection of ornithology, meaning I'm a curator. (laughs) Okay? 
So uh, museum curation is, um, you know, one thing that museum curators do is they always have to justify their museum. Why do we keep dead things in drawers? I'll point out the fossils are dead things in drawers too. <laughs> okay. And, uh, and so it's, uh, it's, it's interesting because we are s involved with so much research that requires uh, extremely high-tech machines in terms of genetic sequencers, and also we're very, very involved in isotope research. And what I mean by that is when they, um, if you want to look at uh, a famous paper that was done that was a methods paper was, uh, the question that was being asked was, are mercury levels rising in the North Atlantic? The answer to that question wasn't the important part. The important part of that piece of research was that bird feathers from oceanic birds were used to prove that mercury levels are indeed increasing. And it paved the way, um, as many other research projects have, that you can use fur and feathers, and also I believe plants are used to a lesser extent, to get an idea of what water and air was in 1880, because we'd have no water samples. And of course, if we had a water sample, it would have rotted, or you would have put a chemical into it that would have killed everything and made it rendered useful, useless for analysis. So that um, one thing that curation is about in the natural sciences is a time series so that you can see changes. Uh, at the Cowan Tetrapod Collection, which is housed at the BD Biodiversity Museum, where I work, um, we have 145 birds from the 1800s. It's not unusual for some of the Mu European museums to have birds from the 1700s. The earliest prepared bird specimens that are still in existence have been found in the Egyptian tombs. So it's not like we're doing anything new or revolutionary. It's been around for a long, long time. But the other wonder about what we're doing and the preparing of new specimens is that we have no idea what research they're going to be used for in 20 years because those machines haven't been invented yet. So... I work in a discipline that is very cutting edge and at the same time, very archaic. And I love that. You're peering into the past uh, with these feathers and also into the future by trying to guess what people will care about um, 20 years from now. Well, I don't think I'm trying to guess. I think I am just making sure that this long data set is available. I've always found it ironic uh, that the term conservator can mean opposite things. Um, conservation in nature is allowing a, um, an environment to continue to uh, regenerate itself as it would without people. But in a museum context, a conservator is someone who arrests those natural processes and um, uh, freezes a piece of nature in time so that we can look back at it in the future. I usually phrase that... Uh 
obviously in my own words, but I usually phrase it that we're giving it a second life. That's a better way of looking at it. <laughs> and uh, uh, avian skins that are properly cared for easily have a shelf life of 300 years, possibly 500 years. And uh, even the birds in the teaching collection, this is the birds that are handled all the time, that literally get thumped on their heads. Uh, they don't last as long. Uh, they only last um, about 50 years before they're done. And, um, and obviously accidents can happen. They can, uh, their life can, their second life can be shortened. I also want to stress here that I'm talking about round study skins. These are basically birds that are prepared, uh, in a compact form. Think of, um, sardines in a tin because we want to maximize the number of birds we can get in a drawer. I'm not talking about taxidermy mounts. Taxidermy mounts do not last. Usually by 100 years, they're looking really, really sad. There's wire in them that uh, basically gets fatigue and breaks down. They're subjected to dust, sunlight, and um, they're just so sad. <laughs> they're beautiful when for the first 10 years of their life and possibly longer, but uh, I'm talking about steady skins. Only 10 years, that's very short. Well, that's been, uh, it depends where you put it. But um, because there's a lot that have, there are some taxidermy mounts that have been well looked after. And um, they obviously will last a lot longer. But usually, you know, they're on someone's mantelpiece or um, something like that. And um, they don't last very long compared to uh, museum skins. Something which has lasted quite a while uh, is the pandemic. I'm curious, uh, how were you affected by COVID or were you affected? Part of it was absolutely marvelous in that, uh, and I've been talking to my colleagues in other museums and most of us found the experience extremely positive. And that was because we had a chance to concentrate on our databases and, um, the job of a curator keeps changing and it actually takes a lot of work to go from leather bound ledgers, which, um, to, um, searchable databases, which have, um, basically the bulk of it is accessible to the general public. And then, of course, we have a slight part, part, a section of it, which is uh, not accessible to the public. And that usually contains information that they, that is not of much interest anyway. And that has to do with, um, just, um, uh, the condition of the skin and, and, um, and some other points. But, um, we, the push is now on to have images to digitize the collection or photo imaging, uh, photo digitization. So the pandemic gave us time. And uh, I'm wondering whether the, your experience was the same. That's a good question. Um, <laughs> I don't do as much curation here as, as you do. Um, and our, our min mineral collection is very well uh, cataloged at the moment. 
Um, but I totally understand what you're saying about always feeling like you're behind the ball on um, on uh, cataloging things and digitizing them. And it always feels like there's a new gold standard that you have to uh, catch up with so that by the time you're done, it's time to start all over again and um, try to meet this new. <laughs> the other thing too that people um, might not appreciate and discussions I've had are, um, are uh, the bird collection at UBC is quite awesome. It's uh, incredibly global in scope and also in terms of the diversity of birds, it represents, uh, we have a lot of very obscure groups that you would not, uh, that basically families, bird families that you would not expect us to have. But it's quite small as a bird collection goes. Um, we're at roughly um, between 23 and 24,000 specimens. And one time I was uh, talking to colleagues in New York, and one thing they were saying is when they're curating a collection of a million, when they take a tiny step, it takes forever to do that little small thing to every single one of their specimens. So in terms of this moving gold standard, it has to be thought of very, very carefully before any curator changes a method because you have to multiply it by thousands. And um, in terms of taking these images, one image won't do. Our images also have to include the labels, and labels have two sides. So not only does a bird have more than one side, but so does the label. Also, with many of the birds, we have to do something which in curation you're never supposed to do. We have to take the labels off the birds so that we can actually photograph the labels so that you can read the information, which means, of course, you have to tie the labels back on. And of course, it's uh, color correction, archiving the images in three places. It's incredibly complex doing what seems like a simple tax, task, which is, um, can you put a picture of it up on the web? <laughs> you know, which sounds like a straightforward request, but it's actually extremely complex. It's like painting London Bridge or, or Tower Bridge. Uh, by the time you're done, you've got a, it's time to start over. <laughs> Yes. And also, I would think that when you're photographing fossils and minerals, you also, to do it a complete set, you would have to do it under different light. In other words, black light and other spectrums. Oh boy, you're introducing a new gold standard for us. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm saying that, you know, as you know, if you go to, I particularly like the way uh, the mineral collection is um, displayed in Pittsburgh at the Carnegie. And they have li different lighting regimes. And that's actually very important for mineral collections. And something that... Uh, people may not know is that uh, under black light, um, newly grown owl feathers glow pink. Oh, wow. Do you know why? I know the name of the chemical, because that has been well-researched, uh, coprofirin-3, 
Um, but as to why, as in a lot of things in nature, there doesn't have to be a why. There's humans inquisitive about a why, but it just can be is. We have no proof that one owl can see it on another owl. I love that. Just embrace the mystery of nature. It often doesn't have... A lot of things can be explained and be proven scientifically, but there's so much more that cannot uh, be readily explained. Ildiko, you've been really inspiring today. Uh, If anyone's listening to this and wants to follow in your footsteps, uh, what advice or um, experiences or um, background would you recommend they pursue? The big uh, push at the moment in museums is actually to get experience of people with informatics. Uh, And that's databasing. So I want to say you don't need to have ever actually taken a science course and have the joy of working in a museum in that there's a lot of people, um, uh, informatics at UBC is taught in, uh, uh, is one department of the uh, library school. Um, And some of the volunteers and some of the undergrads that come through are in anthropology, they're in film, they're um, also in library sciences, um, thinking about being science librarians. So that I want to say that if you have an interest in museums, there's practically no path that you might already be on that couldn't lead there. Wonderful. It's always good to have a diversity of skills. So I would say that um, museum jobs are, uh, museums are not huge employers. They don't have huge staffs. So a lot of uh, employment, getting employment at a museum, is in part having the skills, but also being at the right place at the right time. Because some of the jobs only come up like every 30 years. So I, um, I love museums. I encourage lots of people to have an interest in museums, partic- participate in museum, but it's a very difficult profession to have a goal and to get the position that you actually want. That's perfect. Um, whenever I meet young people who want to work in museums, I want to encourage them, but also, uh, temper their expectations of what their career could be like, because it can be uh, very tough, uh, not because they aren't good at what they do, but because uh, the field is is tough. <laughs> and it's a lot of it's luck. <laughs> and I would say that the field is, um, uh, instead of using the word tough, I think uh, I would like to phrase it is it employs very few individuals. So that um, if you are at the right place at the right time, everything falls together and it goes very smoothly. But um, when someone is in mid-career and has the job you want in the city you want, you are out of luck.
You mentioned earlier that you take on a lot of students um, and you help students. What do you look for when you're recruiting students? I actually wait for them to come to the museum. Um, some students find out about us during the bird course. Some students um, are inquisitive enough that they find us through the um, through the uh, basically the museum website, and some students ask their instructors for pointers, and they uh, get uh, and it's suggested to them that they contact the museum. And anyone who is interested. Uh, do contact the curator of whatever discipline that you're interested in, or several, and um, and explore. Also, the museum is for everyone on campus, everyone in the province, and uh, it's especially for students because it's free for them. Um, and um, come and explore. And that means both museums. Absolutely. Crossing the street is not very difficult. Absolutely. <laughs> now, my final question today. Um, I'm, I'm sure retirement is a long way off. Um, but what would you like to be your professional legacy when you do retire? In my particular family, you start thinking about your legacy when you're rather young. My first family discussion on that was when I was 15. So I'm actually feeling quite comfortable in that I feel that I have achieved already uh, leaving a legacy. I've got two books out and I have mentored many people. And they are doing, most of them are doing fantastically well. And that is a wonderful thing. But the main thing is, um, is the feel, is the feeling of having left the uh, collection I'm curating in better hands. But I'm also, because I am who I am and I switch careers quite often, I'm actually planning and laying groundwork for my next career. I, um, what I'd like to do is I would, um, and uh, the Museum of Anthropology has said yes, um, I would like to spend a lot more time over there. And in their database, they have a lot of artifacts that are labeled feather. And that's it. And I'm very interested in avian forensic morphology. And at one point I was Canada's only certified forensic avian morphologist. I have let my accreditation go. So at the moment Canada doesn't have one. But uh, what I want to do is I want to use both microscope and visuals and feathered feather determinations. And basically that will have me working in both museum collections at the same time and uh, discovering connections. And sometimes there's, you know, you do, there's um, a lot of history involved. So for um, a show that uh, Jennifer Kramer 
curated at the MOA, one of the pieces she picked was a Maori cape. And at the time I was in the MOA helping with the Amazonia exhibit. And I walked by and I said, how interesting. That cape's made out of uh, turkey feathers. And she said, no, it's from New Zealand. And I said, well, it's turkey. And we had great fun researching that. And what we discovered was that um, turkeys were, and I can't remember any of the years, but basically the late 1800s on the North Island near Hawke's Bay, um, American turkeys um, had become feral and uh, were be, and of course, why wouldn't you use the new bird on the block, especially when it has gorgeous iridescent feathers with a coppery tone? And when we seriously looked at the capes, we f we uh, found uh, the signature feathers which Maori weavers use to identify which capes they've made, and those were of native um, New Zealand species, ende uh, endemic New Zealand species. So that was great fun. So you really never know when you're delving into things where it'll take you. That's really cool, and I love that that interdisciplinary approach to um, studying biodiversity, but also uh, traditional trade uh, trade routes and um, yeah, anthropological uh, issues. Ildiko, those are all the questions I have for you for today. Is there anything I missed or anything you want to add before I let you go? I actually don't think so. I uh, We've covered a lot of ground. Well, thank you for showing us that ornithology is not just for the birds. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yes. You know, I had to work that in there somewhere. <laughs> yes. Well, there's an awful lot of the English language, which is um, expressions that have to do with ornithology. And sometimes we don't actually realize. Thanks for sharing your passion and your stories and your knowledge. Um, and I wish you all the best in uh, wherever life takes you next. That's very kind. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website, at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast or listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week here on Earth.